Welcome to the Koi Chronicles. I'm Michael Strickland, entrepreneur, growth strategist, and executive coach. My career has spanned three decades in working with executives, teams, and companies seeking to expand and grow. So what does a group of fish have to do with leading and growing companies? Well, join me on a journey of discovery that came not from the latest leadership book or a seminar, but from a very unexpected place, from a few fish and a couple of my canine friends. Walk with me and my guests as we discover and ponder together what nature's small friend, Sam, a small bossy Cairn Terrier, and Sigmund, a more laid-back beagle, and Koi, Savannah, shy and boss, gifted to me. Join me while I interview some interesting folks and muse on a lot of things as I wind down my journey. So welcome to the Koi Chronicles. Welcome everyone to the Koi Chronicles. This podcast features lessons on leadership and success tips for entrepreneurs. And I'm your host, Michael Strickland. I'd like to welcome a very special guest we have today, Mark Hogg, the Executive Director and President of Waterstep. Mark, you didn't realize you were going to be part of a fish story, did you? Well, I just thought, Michael, maybe you were just talking a little bit about my personality. I wasn't sure what context you were using Koi to be in. I assure you, not a personal affront at all. I would like to give a little context to both yourself and also our listeners. Why and how do you connect beautiful koi fish with lessons for leaders? How do those two different worlds get mixed in the same pond, I suppose might be a good metaphor. Let me share with you just a brief story. It was a decade ago I had this idea that I wanted to become a koi master. I had seen on an oriental trip a beautiful Japanese garden that had beautiful koi fish, and it was this very quiet and lush garden in the city of Tokyo, which is a huge, massive, loud, and filled with millions of people. But as you walked into this park in Tokyo, it was complete silence, and it was nothing but the sound of water and these beautiful fish that were swimming along at their own peaceful pace, elegantly trimmed shrubs. And it was just, for me, it struck me as that's how that culture, I think, creates a moment of quiet and solitude for themselves. So that planted a seed within me, and it was all some four or five years later. I did have this, this, you wake up one morning and you say, okay, I think maybe I'm going to become a koi master and dig me a hole in the ground in the backyard. That's where it started some 10 years ago. But like that park experience, my koi pond over the years has been a place, and it's directly right out my back door, literally, has become a quiet place for solitude for me. But what was interesting, the connection that ultimately occurred to me, uh, not quite on the scale of a, a Japanese garden with hundreds of tenants, I assume, that are trimming every day, but it became my respite, my crop quiet area. But I did notice when it got quiet for me in that place, in my own area that I created, some of the more creative thoughts that I was dealing with, with my clients and, and their challenges, some of the answers to their problems and solutions came to me in those quiet moments of reflection. So it really became a place where 
I felt as if I was creating a connection with something natural in nature and and in the quietness of that, it really gave me some answers. And what was surprising about this whole experience was I actually learned a lot from my koi friends that I didn't realize. I don't want to go deeply into that story today because time doesn't permit, but I think in our busy lives and business and the business storm, if you will, I'm sure, Mark, was your, what was your day like today? It's been a little explosive today. I think there's times where I could have used a, a wander behind a koi pond a uh, time or two for sure. When we get involved in that business storm, and, and we can talk a little bit about uh, the literal storms that you might be facing in the business that you're in, but I do want to at least reflect that finding ways to calm the storm and find the quietness is something that has to be a learned skill mm. for us because it doesn't come natural right. for busy executives. Don't you see that? And, and all you have to do is look around us. We are so engaged in work, 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 and smartphone, 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 that sometimes we the answers of the complex problems don't come to us as easily because of all the dis- distractions. So that might be something, but it doesn't help us learn about water stuff. Well, but I think if we have, I was just going to say, uh, no, but, but Chuck, it's applicable to, to just life. And especially, you know, those of us that are trying to balance, it's so easy to get caught up in the culture that we live in. I get a little scared sometimes because looking, I don't know about you, but looking back, how I lived in the culture years ago and how I live in it today. I just, I didn't feel like I did a great job sometimes in my history, but now there is such a competition for my time in ways that I cannot even control as easy. That cell phone is one of them that you mentioned earlier. So it, I think it's, it's more work, extremely much more intentional because there aren't pauses in the day that there used to be. And so what you're talking about is critical, no matter if we're chatting about water step or anything else today, because what we're chatting about is, is people trying to, trying to work with other people, people trying to impact people. And the challenges that you're talking about and the need for that rest meant storms is important in any context. You know, as you were speaking about that, I happened to be listening to it. I think it was, uh, I was on a trip this weekend and I was listening to Bill Bradley, the former NBA, great basketball player, former senator, now has a uh, radio broadcast. I think it's on Sirius XM, I believe. And he was interviewing, and I can't recall the guy. He was obviously famous and had written the book, but his book, the name of the book is There's No App for happiness and his contention was you know there's an app for everything but his belief and why this is fresh on my mind is you know listening to that particular radio broadcast reflected to me that of our society how we are so connected to devices that sometimes we have missed the connection with the simple things like a koi fish swimming up and down gracefully in water and you hear the waterfall in the background and those peaceful moments are rare and we try to look for them electronically sometimes and i think when all the while the most joy may be right in front of our eyes but we just don't we're disconnected right. from it 
Let our audience and listeners get an understanding. I'm going to ask you a very large question, but before I do, you recently visited and spoke with my CEO peer group in Louisville, and my colleague members, they were literally mesmerized by your story. There was the quietness in the room when you know important words are being spoken. And these are busy folks. It's what I call herding a group of tigers around the room and getting them still enough to listen. And most of their time and energy, as you know, are spent in looking at balance sheets and trying to figure out what the pro forma statement is going to look like. What's the projection for their growth numbers by quarter, by month, by what's the productivity of all of our KPIs? And they get lost in all of that. And when a human story shows up, that literally quiets the room, I think it's worth Mm. sharing beyond the room in which you shared that story. So let me, because I have an advanced context of what you do, let me ask this question. I'd like for you to just take us on the journey a bit. Your mission in life has literally been to save lives with safe water. Where did that come from? Take us on that it, journey. Um, it took quite a while to really formulate any direction. And I'll be honest with you, a, a lot of times there wasn't a specific plan. It was just dots connecting. It was being in the right place at the right time. And, and often more than anything, it was it was having great people around me that uh, encouraged me and believed in me and, and shored me up and challenged me. But when I was in college, I, I was a pretty spoiled person here in the U.S. I grew up in the South. I was the second educated person in my family. My father was the first. We are blue collar for the most part. History in cotton and steel and a lot of moonshine stories from Bessemer, Alabama. My dad left the family to kind of seek another place to, to work after he went to college. And so we ended up settling when I was very young in Nashville, Tennessee. I grew up there and I'd wrestled with my fate growing up. I was always intrigued by helping other people out. I was always intrigued how people encouraged me to be in challenging situations, and they encouraged me through that. I had a great people, my parents and others that believed in me. But the big impact happened that it kind of was a catalyst and fused a lot of things together to launch me into a new place was when I was in college. I went to West Africa. And I got chosen to be on this trip with a couple of other folks from our college in Nashville and uh, Belmont University. And so I went and I was in the middle of nowhere. I didn't know what I was doing. I'd never built a dam before. We arrived in Burkina Faso. It was so hot. I'd never experienced that kind of heat in the middle of the night before. When we arrived there, the next day we drove to a severe remote area, if you can imagine, harsh heat and stick huts out of National Geographic and a gentleman pointing at a nasty large pond saying that we needed to build a a dam behind it so that at the rainy season it would hold a tremendous amount of water and not knowing. I was so upside down, I didn't know which way was up. And so That moment in my life began to direct me with a passion where I could actually maybe make a difference in somebody's life. What would that be? So being in that project as the weeks and months passed, I I realized the value of what 
we were doing with this dam and and the impact that it could make. I saw people walk for long, long periods of time to get to this nasty pond to water their cattle and their goats and their sheep, bathe their children and wash their clothes, and they would drink in that. And the children would play next to cattle defecating in the water. And it was a, a horrific scene because I knew it wasn't healthy and I was there long enough to know people died as a result of what I now know is waterborne illness. But to be able to be in a situation and do a champion project like that in order for them to have more water, the project was going to allow that area to hold and held about 20 acres of water in the rainy season, at the end of the rainy season, it would triple in size with our work to 60 acres. And knowing that we could do that just made an impression on me that was transforming and I wanted more of that. How do I make a difference? But underlying that, as I worked there and realized the issue of water and that these people could not do anything about the water and it just ate into me, why can't these people do something about their own water? Do you have to be a physicist or a scientist or have some sort of mini water treatment plant or I'm sorry, water treatment plant built to make water safe? Why can't it be done in a different manner? So for me, my angst about being a part of of water myself really got inspired there with this thought that I carried for many, many years until I was able to to see how to start making some dots to where I could live a life that was all about water. But there was much for me to learn and go through between the time of being in Africa and being able to be introduced to, shown, and to, to realize what ordinary people can do to make their water supply safe. And obviously this experience, it did etch your DNA mm-hmm. a bit. You came back trans- sure did. transformed. Um, like I said, I, oh, my family, we were very, very bigoted. I went to a situation where I was surrounded by black people and there was a, a cultural issue that I had in my own life that rubbed against that. There was the issue of arrogance uh, being from the United States from and thinking that anybody anywhere else was not of value or worth. And I had an experience one night, we would take these uh, caravans with a dump truck and some other equipment and pick up people and drive them out and they'd have a big service and conversation and together and music. And I sat and I looked at an old man sitting in a chair made out of sticks and his clothes were tattered, the only clothes he had. And he was so engaged in the evening and so engaged in the speaker that night and so connected to what was going on that I engaged in it because I realized how disconnected I was. And it messed with me because I realized that this gentleman who was in the middle of nowhere was understanding a connection with with God, with his own world, with his humanity that I didn't even have an inkling to. And what made what scared me to death is that I may may never be able to have that. And so there were so many parts of me that were turned upside down 
in that area, I got an introduction not only to water issues, but an introduction to a totally different world where, where life and death were kind of things that you face daily to try to get through the day to live sometimes and, and a totally different way of thinking and living. And it, it really, it really messed my world up tremendously. When you say messed up your world, uh, how long were you on that? I was through the summer. It was a summer project, yeah. Yeah, so here you are, a college kid in the middle of a foreign Mm -hmm. continent, if you will, being exposed to something of foreign, but also considered inferior. So the revelation for you, it sounds like to me the revelation for you was, don't let me speak for you, of course, but the revelation for you was, I never realized how maybe restricted right. my own thinking might be. So uh, I'm curious, why, why did you, was it your college professor? Huh. Or, who decided kind of that funny. you should go to um, Africa? The trip left me with no frame of reference, you know, in my life. That's what really messed me up. And it was only, it was about six months ago, really, that I found out how I really got to go on this trip because I always was kind of curious um, I was not a very good student. There was a lot about me that was kind of kind of screwed up back then. And I went to my home church in Nashville, Tennessee, had a 65-year anniversary or something like that. And so I went, and I hadn't been back there in, in forever. But a college professor who attended that church and was a friend of mine back then, and he happened to be there, and we sat down. And we started talking about Africa and because he was uh, in my life back then. And he said something real interesting about being on the selection committee and kind of pitching oh, for me to be able to go on a trip and et cetera, et cetera. A story that I guess he thought I knew. I'd never heard that story before. And so what's interesting to be this far on the other side of the story and to go back and hear Dr. Bird, this great guy, say that he was an advocate for me to go there because he hoped it would screw up my life and that it would make a difference was a really interesting perspective for me. I'm glad I found out about it when I did so late because it really made me appreciate him. Without that experience, I'm not sure where my world would be. There's no way I would be where I'm at. It it changed absolutely everything about my life. It, It reformed every cell uh, within my being. Mark, before you t- return from Africa, I, I do have a, I have a follow-on question. You know, obviously this project was trying to convert an existing water source for, I assume, a village, a community that was at risk, was tainted, but it was the only resource. I assume you had others, construction expertise along with you. You're a college guy, so I assume you weren't leading the project. Well, it's kind of funny that you say that. To a degree, I ended up leading the project. We were met a guy with a bulldozer that, you know, kind of laid the area we were supposed to work in. We got a delivery of rocks every day and concrete, and we had a few shovels, and we would mix the concrete by hand, and we laid in rocks. And basically what we were making was a, a deep road and a big berm, filling it with concrete and rebar, and dirt and one of the the guys that was helping me was also from the university and he got sick with waterborne illness 
So there was a period of time where he wasn't able to work. I felt all alone, and we had some 40 Africans standing around, and we were all trying to communicate to each other how to get this, figure out how to get this done. And we had maybe twice we had one of the uh, leaders, missionaries, if you will, kind of give us a little bit of direction. And it was a pretty intimidating project, to be honest with you. So uh, that was another piece for me as I was thrown in a situation of, of leadership and the attempt to develop my own communication skills with people that were from a different culture, didn't speak my language, and, and how we figured out how to work together. So there were a lot of components of learning for me on the project. The other people that were with me on the trip had other things they were doing. They were out goodness knows where out there doing other stuff. Uh, so at this, at this water source, it was, it was just a couple of white guys and a, and a bunch of Africans. And so here you are, college kid, now project manager. Right. <laughs> <laughs> as you think about that experience, what's the most memorable thing as you left the country? Well, I tell you, I always tell a story about a, a little boy that changed my life and I carry a picture with him. I show it everywhere I go to speak, and he had tattered, little tattered shirt and, and pants on. His, his little belly was extended with parasites, but he intrigued me. His name was Laban, and there were, it was just hot all the time, and we'd work as long as we could, and then we'd, we'd go into this shade of mango trees and, and take a little break and try to get our wits about us and go back and work in the heat. Well, Laban would kneel at my feet every single break. He would take a stick or a rock that he, he would bring over and he'd start scraping my legs. And he, you know, I'd have dried concrete and dirt and, you know, chunks of mud uh, that as we were working in, in the, the site and he would clean my legs off. And I was touched by that. Uh, he and I developed a little relationship and had our own little language eventually of communicating, which was nice. And it was just, it was neat just sitting with this kid every time we had a break and, and chatting with him and the others in the group. But Laban impressed me because even after I left, looking back on it, my, my memory began to take a different form because I don't know that Laban was just being a nice kid. I think Laban's perspective is something that I've, of matured to understand. I think Laban's perspective was that we need this dam built. We got to have more water. I think Laban knew what it was like to wake up and want to play soccer with one of his, his buddies one morning. And uh, that child had died during the night of a waterborne illness. I think he knew what it was like to, to lose family members to disease from waterborne illness. I, I knew, I think he knew what it was like to be thirsty. I think he knew what it was like to have his parents bring home water that was tainted to make him, you know, that would make him sick, but he had to have it. He was thirsty. And that perspective for me was one that has really driven me over the years because I think Laban was challenging me to get back in the game every time we took a break. I think Laban knew the importance of the project being done before in the rainy season. Two days before we finished, there was a light rain. Rainy season was ready to start, and we were we were scared to death that we wouldn't have 
time to get our concrete dry. Well, Laban knew the seasons. Laban knew the situation. Laban knew what it was like to be thirsty, knew what it was like to be sick from the unsafe water. And Laban was doing his job with me. Small child, he couldn't haul rocks. He couldn't dig dirt. He couldn't mix concrete. But he could take the guy that was trying to inspire, lead, and champion uh, the group of people to be busy all day, every day. And he could do his best to, to sit with him and clean him off and get him ready to go back in the game after every break. And so that's something that we even say to people when they come into to Water Step for a visit is that's new to, the, to what we do is we say we need you in the game. Because when you were engaged in the game, we can accomplish great things together. And we, I learned that. I learned that in that experience on the other side of the planet, just south of the Sahara Desert in the middle of a, middle of a very hot place from a little boy, that the team has got to stay strong and we need leadership to make that happen. So a Southern Alabama college boy goes to Africa and through the gift of Laban, comes back a renewed passion for saving lives with clean water. I would be nowhere without Laban, without that little boy. Yeah, and as you were telling that story, I I wonder whatever happened. Because uh, to me, what strikes me about that story, every scrape probably saved a thousand lives. Over the <laughs> as the years have gone I like on. That. Well, let, let me ask you the question though. There's a gap to be filled. You come back to the United States. You're a college mm-hmm. guy. You've been you've been tampered with. It's not really settled in as to what that tampering is. It sounded like to me, but it, you came back somewhat conflicted from when uh, where you came from, and here we are today. You know, uh, decades later. You're now a head of an organization that, and I say organization, that is devoted to this cause. Fill in the gap right. from getting off the airplane to now where we sit today. I ended up getting home, and my experience with a lot of people, this is 1983, most of the people that I was around or hung with had no concept of being overseas it wasn't a, you know you hear lots of people going overseas today it wasn't common back then there wasn't a lot of interest in me telling a story about being a long long ways away and so i felt myself kind of alone trying to process that also i think uh, part of that being kind of turned inside out in an experience there's a loneliness that that comes with that so That lasted for a while to try to figure out, like you said earlier, how do I how do I make sense of this? But one thing that did to do for me is it it engaged me in a confidence that was very different. And I was able to, I think, engage in my own world and be more confident with folks around me. I moved to Louisville, Kentucky, Uh, started a, a small remodeling company here. I went to a seminary here. My goals were to be involved in in youth ministry. I worked with young people. I had my little construction business. And so life kind of went on, and and this this angst in me was still there. 
this experience in, in Africa just would not go away, but I wasn't sure what to do with that. And my experience with young people and leading people on mission became to be a, a large and strong passion. I loved seeing people in an uncomfortable, unsettling situation, something that was foreign, something that was would challenge them like I was in Africa, and to, to try to, to seed or create the potential for that environment. And if they wanted to engage in that, just to, to watch and see what could happen in their own lives. So that became a driving passion. As the years went by, my wife and I began Waterstep back then, it was under a different name, called Edge Outreach. And so we created this organization in the hopes to challenge more young people and work with youth workers in the same manner. What happened was about two years into the organization, two or three years, 97, 98 probably, we looked around and looked at small and medium-sized churches that would never imagine an international trip, again, like that changed my life. So we decided to take as many churches as possible to three different countries, and there's a long story on how those got chosen, but it ended up being Kenya, Brazil, and Costa Rica. We met with these people over two years, 165 people. We developed this great community of folks from from all over the region, from 25 different churches. It was amazing. And what I didn't realize was that there was so much that had to happen to me since that experience in Africa. And I've learned since, and because of the story I'm telling you now, that I, I do not underestimate the value of time. Uh, I'm not a patient person, but I do believe there's something bigger going around me always, and I need to try to pay attention to that. So as you said, there's this gap in my life. We start this organization that builds the, the bones and the, the foundation to water step in 1995. Three years later, we do this big trip that happens in 2001. And as we're leaving on this trip in 2001, which is 18 years almost to the day that I was uh, hanging out with Laban in West Africa, I'm going to the commissioning service for this huge event with hundreds of people. We're about to fly out in two days all at one time, do these big projects. We had deaf people working with orphan kids dying of AIDS in Brazil. We had construction projects. We had schools work going on, people teaching in schools, you name it. We had this huge, amazing thing happening. The night of the commissioning service, we're going to a large, beautiful Catholic church around here in Louisville called St. Margaret Mary. And back then, you know, cell phones weren't weren't a dime a dozen like they are now. And I had my hand on the doorknob going out the door and the phone in the kitchen rang. And my personality is one to just keep barging out and I'll worry about that later. But for some reason, I stopped and turned around and answered the phone. And a gentleman who's another game changer person in my life on the other end said to me, Mark, I hear you're going to Kenya. And I thought the guy sounded like a salesman. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, you know, the water's bad there. And I said, yes, sir, I've heard that. And he said, but you can do something about that. And so for me, the distance that you're talking about, I was ready to hear that. 
I was ready to make that connection. Matter of fact, I was salivating, passionate, open, broken, whatever you want to say, but every cell in my body that had been transformed in 1983 was now ready for the next step. And when he said, you can do something about that, my entire spirit, mind, body, everything about me stopped. And I knew these next moments were the most important moments of my life. And so when he shared with me the power of a tool with such simplicity that could take salt and a little bit of electricity from a car battery and water and make it safe to drink, that was what the catalyst needed to have the direction that it required to go to the next level. It's now a water step. So now the path is clear at that moment for you. Yes, sir. So let's fast forward it to today. How many people are involved in your organization today? From the scraping of the legs to the gap to the meeting of the and the cathartic question, you know you can do something about that. What does Waterstep look like today? We have, at any given day, well over 100 projects in dozens of countries around the world that are about water and providing sanitation disinfectant in communities. We have the only indoor year-round well repair training program on the planet for people to repair these wells that are all around the world that break within 12 months and just need a simple fix, but they get abandoned. We train on the internet all over the place. We're responding in our 14th disaster in the Bahamas. We just decided that two days ago. And the capability for us to respond in the Bahamas doesn't require our, may not require our presence. So we've been able to build a network. We have a network of people in Puerto Rico that are responding to that disaster. So when you say how many people are involved, I'm going to make just an assumption and say hundreds and hundreds of people are involved. We began to track data in 2006 with the impact we were making. And from the way we track the data, we have over 3 million people whose lives that we've impacted. And that requires a tremendous number of leaders and visionaries in different cultures around the world. So we storehouse our equipment. We've grown to a place where we, we manufacture all of our own equipment. We have patents on certain equipment. We have our own research and development group that's volunteer. We have our own volunteer manufacturing outfit. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. And these people come ready to work, passionate. They have a, a spirit about them that is humbling. And my dream every day is to get to work at Waterstep with these people. So in essence, your mission is in full force. You're impacting all over the world. But what I'm struck by, and you said it earlier, the simplicity of it, salt, some electricity, and we, we now have the capability of turning bad to good. But behind that is also more about teaching people to become sufficient on their own. Is yes. that part of your philosophy and mission as well? I mean, you're, I, I, I was thinking you're almost like bad water detectives, 
<laughs> then, then find the way to connect with people in those areas to provide them the technology simplistically based upon the restrictions of their limited capability to support technology, let's say. But you teach them how to make fresh water so they can keep making fresh water after yes, sir. they've been taught. What a great gift. What a great gift. Well, and the nice thing is our equipment is extremely robust. And as you said, it's simple, it's portable, or there's nothing to break on it by design. And so it's like leaving a piece of equipment that has an indefinite lifespan with a person that can pass the knowledge of how to use this equipment that may not even be able to read their own language. It makes me look at that experience in 1983 and realize how elegant this process that we do today becomes because in 1983, the only thing I knew was, gee, this has got to be done by really complicated people in a really requiring a ton of energy and a ton of support and tons of money, et cetera, et cetera. And the simplicity and the elegance and the the niche that it fits is absolutely beautiful. And the only way, it's the only way a group like those people in 1983 are able to take care of themselves. And, and of course, you uh, you are a nonprofit organization, but it does take it takes funds. It takes it costs yes, things to do this. And you were sharing with our group. I know when you spoke to us uh, that you got some new technology on the horizon that mm-hmm. has applicability that might go beyond the distressed part of the world that doesn't have safe water to drink. To and unfortunately, as I as everyone woke up today, if you lived on the East Coast, from Miami, Florida, all the way up to almost Boston, you're going to be impacted by a horrendous hurricane that's going to stress multiple communities over and over again. They know how to have water, but sometimes those situations hit you all at once. And you may have situations where fresh water is not even available in a country like ours. So talk talk to us a little bit about how WaterStep is trying to address and assist in communities that have these disasters or emergencies that show up, but at the outcome of it is they need fresh water. And our typical response is, let's try to fly in bottled water. So talk to us a little bit about that quickly. There's a paradigm in disasters that has got to change with water. And most of us just see it as a necessity. We We bring in tons and tons of bottled water. We bring in very expensive, complicated, larger reverse osmosis systems on trailers that require trained technicians that require a tremendous amount of energy. What's happened, you know, if if you don't have safe water, I don't care where you're at, you're in a disaster. Whether you were in that place I was in in 1983 or you're hurting on the coast or in the Bahamas today, you're, you're in a disaster. So what we realized by happenstance is we responded to a disaster in 2009 in Costa Rica because we had a water team there. We just happened to show up and say, we think what we've got could help provide a large amount of ongoing safe water at this disaster. And it, it, it went wonderfully. And we learned that this is a great tool. So Waterstep has has been surrounded by people uh, and and attracts people. 
that like to solve problems in a way that I'll go back to that word that I love that describes us as that are that's elegant. And when I talk about elegant, I mean something that's easy to understand and operate, that's inexpensive, that's that's simple, that's that's portable, that's sustainable. It doesn't have to have a bunch of things replaced on it. So as the years have gone by, we've continued to build on that model, engage in these situations, these disasters that we've been a part of, and continue to learn. That's been attractive to other people for us. And the EPA's research and development group with their Homeland Security office came to us and said, what you all are doing has great potential in disasters in a way that nobody's thinking about. And so we began to look at a tooling, if you will, of the equipment that we used in conjunction with things that are off the shelf. And we put together some patented manifolds that that we made and and we bought a generator and solar panels and car battery and put in some pumps, blah, blah, blah. So we added these components and came up with this hotel cleaning cart size tool that we could teach a teenager to operate in a matter of hours that could push and pull water, filter water, charge cell phones and computers that can create a tremendous amount of disinfectant and has this great use in a disaster. The cool thing about us as a a nonprofit, and thanks for saying that, Mike, I'm going to encourage all your listeners to go to our donate button and and push it. But the the thing about being a nonprofit in in today's world is that that landscape is changing constantly. And so to have a nonprofit that's got the gumption in it to create in in this, this environment, to create these kinds of tools and then to, to have the confidence that these kind of tools could be used in disasters is, is, is pretty impressive to me. I'm very, very proud of our team and our group and the potential for us to be able to work with folks that have the potential to purchase equipment actually is encouraging for us in our work in the developing world because that type of of machine that helps people in disasters can also be a machine that helps people in the developing world be able to take care of their own lives. And what a great utilization of the knowledge that you guys have garnered, but yet keeping it simple. You know, Mark, I'd love to talk with you all day because this is a fascinating journey that you've been been on, both as an individual, but as a leader of an organization that has to run day to day. And you've obviously made a significant impact. There are two things I'd like to ask you about. One, I know you have a program that shoes for water. Mm -hmm. And I also want to understand how that works. And secondly, to your point earlier, is if someone wanted to become involved in your mission of saving lives with safe water, and that speaks to them, how they could possibly get involved. Let's do a twofold response for that. Okay. If you've ever been a part of a nonprofit, and Michael, I know you've been a part of a lot of them, but sometimes you, you try crazy things in the hopes that they might work. Years ago, we were introduced to a gentleman that was collecting used shoes in St. Louis, selling those to an exporter and raising money to drill some wells in Kenya. 
for people. And I was intrigued by that and, and uh, wanted to learn about that. The things that were intriguing to me were how neat it was that anybody, any age could do that. You didn't have to figure you need to write big checks, but anybody can give a pair of shoes. So we began to learn from him and he worked with us for a couple of years to help mentor us on building a shoe program that was actually a business. And the business is a great circle. It it takes shoes out of our landfill that would be thrown away. It allows for shoes to eventually get on the, the foot of some little girl somewhere that's maybe walking to get water for her family, barefooted, their feet are getting cut up and getting germs in them and bacteria and that kind of thing. It also helps build small business around the world, which I love. I love people to be as self-sufficient as they can. And so they're able to get shoes for a good price and then put them in their market. And then the other thing that it does is that it supplies water step with funding for water projects. Like that gentleman was raising money for the wells to be drilled in Kenya. So what's happened over the years is that that organization, that part of our organization has grown and become a, a tremendously important piece of our financial structure. But it also builds relationships. We got, we've got this brilliant, wonderful young woman in our organization right now. She's on a, a scholarship with another outfit that's giving her the water step for uh, nine months in her master's degree in engineering. And I didn't realize this until this week that she used to collect shoes at her school when she was in middle school to give to Waterstep. And now she's working at Waterstep and her passion is water. So the shoes allow virtually anybody to be a part of this, this huge effort, this problem in the world to solve. It makes Waterstep money. It helps our brand. I mean, uh, you can't pay for the PR that this has done for us. So as a business person, the marketing tool that it is is like none other. I am approached constantly in the community and, oh, I got my Waterstep shirt on. You're, you're with Waterstep. That's those shoe people. And I get to say, well, let me tell you what we do about those shoes. And suddenly we've got somebody coming in for a tour and getting involved at a deeper level. Well, and what strikes me about both, not, not only your core mission, but even the collection of shoes are ultimately put on the right feet. So it's all, it's still targeted to serving others that sometimes can't serve themselves. Exactly. What an awesome commitment to one's, not only organization, but to one's life. So I deeply respect that. How does one get involved? Well, um, the shoe program is a great way. Of course, uh, we have people that uh, run routes for us. We have people that have big shoe drives in other states, and we work with them. Shoes is fun to get your business or your church or your community. We have community neighborhoods sometimes that do shoe drives, get them all charged up and, and be a part of that. We have volunteer manufacturing that happens here, which... You know, I tell people all the time, you can't be a finished carpenter and build our equipment or a framing carpenter. You've got to be a finished carpenter, somebody is attention to detail. But one of the things that you and I've talked about that I'm really jazzed about is as our as our new product, this wild cart has been announced in the last two weeks. And we've got some stuff about that on our Facebook page and on our website. But I want to put together what you refer to often as a tiger team of businessmen and women that would be interested in working with Waterstep to create a business 
that funds and fuels the nonprofit to save lives over long term. I believe we're at a place where nonprofits are going to really, really struggle more and more as time goes on. For us at Watership, it's already happening. The division between business and nonprofit is becoming a more and more gray area. So how do we strengthen business so that donor dollars are multiplied better and that Waterstep impacts more lives? So that that draw for someone that, that may have some great business or manufacturing or sales or communication and marketing kind of passion and interest to bring that to the game, that's a great volunteer table. So those are some ways that I believe that, and we're always working on our building. We've got the pleasure and honor that we've been supplied a large building for training and manufacture in our offices. We have some tenants here, but it always needs work. So those are, those are some great areas of volunteering. Mark, I, I cannot say how, how the story impacts. And, and obviously, the, the more you get an opportunity to share that story, I think the more interest that people will want to at least raise their hand and volunteer mm, some time and energy. Thank you. Give us your website. What's your website? It's uh, pretty easy. Waterstep.org is our website. We're busy on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And we've got a great YouTube channel at Waterstep. That's a lot of neat videos about our equipment and about what we do. Our blog is, is full of good stories. If you think You've enjoyed my story. You need to hear some of the stories of some of these people on the blog. They're they're just beautiful. They need to be bound. It's fantastic. Mark, you've been great. I appreciate it. You and I have uh, spoken about Waterstep and the direction you're on. And so I appreciate the opportunity that you've allowed me to learn more about your organization and now my listeners. So I appreciate that very much. We are always eager to bring to the business community tips for a better obviously a better business, a better leader, and a better entrepreneur, but sometimes being being effective in those roles, you start first by being human. Mm. And I think, Mark, you represent the symbol of humanness that you brought to not only to our audience today, but you're touching multiple lives all over this planet. I have the opportunity to go to bed at night and not worry about where my next drink of water comes from. So. so I appreciate it very much. Listeners, stay tuned for more to come on Koi Chronicles. Uh, this is Michael Strickland bidding you farewell. Thanks, Michael. Bye-bye. This is Michael Strickland. Thanks for being with us and join me next time for our next Koi Chronicles. Visit us at michaelstricklandconsulting.com or follow us on Podbean. Until then, Michael Strickland, and don't forget, the planets and stars and heavens are a perfect management operating system that has already solved your problem if you just take time to observe it.